Kia ora, welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. My name is Rose and I have been doing school at home using Google Classroom and Zoom. I'm very excited to get back to school and see my friends at Level 2. Kia ora Rose, lovely to hear from you. Hopefully you'll be back in the classroom before too long. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast, I'm Indira Stewart. Remember to keep sending in your own introductions to the podcast through RNZ's Vox Pop app. It's also a great way to send us feedback, ask questions and all sorts of stuff. It's easy to download and simple to use. Later this episode, our producer Sonia Sly is taking a look at whether COVID-19 is changing our approach to packaging. But first, the headlines. We're all holding our breath for the big news today, Cabinet's decision on when we will move down from Level 3. Health Minister David Clark says that Cabinet members will be looking at the most up-to-date evidence when they meet today, as well as advice from the Director-General of Health. He told Morning Report they'll be considering all aspects of the country's COVID-19 response when it comes to making that decision. Our border controls, our contact tracing, our testing, the uh, public uh, understanding and buy-in to our social distancing regimes, uh, how workplaces are responding, the feedback we're getting from businesses, all of those things will be taken into account as well as overseas experience. Mr Clark says Cabinet needs to be assured that any move is done safely so that the hard gains we've all been fighting for are locked in. Now over the weekend we had four new cases of COVID-19 all linked to the St Margaret Rest Home Cluster in Auckland. On Friday, Director of Public Health Dr Caroline McElnay said the low number of cases we've been seeing is reassuring and now the district health boards will be beefing up random testing to try and detect asymptomatic cases of COVID-19. What we've asked the DHBs to do is to put in place specific testing for their area um, based on where either they've seen cases that there may have been a likelihood of high exposure or areas where their testing has underrepresented of local communities. So it's the DHBs who are managing that at a local level. Now contact tracing is another area officials need to be assured is up to scratch. You might remember when the independent infectious disease specialist Dr Aisha Verrill made a rapid review of contact tracing, she found that system came up short and she made a raft of urgent recommendations. Now she says that while there's still work to do, she's confident that the system is now ready for the country to move to level two. The contact tracing system has improved so much over the last two months that uh, I haven't seen a health system improve that fast uh, ever and I have confidence it's suitable for moving to level two. Meanwhile, at least five health workers from Waitakere Hospital in West Auckland are known to have tested positive for COVID-19 this month, including one who's been hospitalised. Patients from Auckland St Margaret's Rest Home were transferred to Waitakere Hospital on the 17th and 18th of April and the healthcare workers who've tested positive now are believed to be part of that cluster. The New Zealand Nurses Organisation says there are gaps in how we are protecting those who are on the front lines caring for others and their spokesperson Katie Weston told Morning Report the situation is concerning. To have five nurses, healthcare workers um, get COVID 
in the workplace is significant. So if we look at the roughly 50 staff that were stood down, that's 10% of the staff have, have developed COVID and we're still waiting. Um, the isolation period is not yet over for other staff who are still stood down. So it's significant and it really does warrant some very serious investigation. Kate Weston says nurses are doing their job and they deserve to be safe. The Prime Minister has already suggested that we might not make the leap to level two all in one go. And speaking on Friday, Finance Minister Grant Robertson said one area which may be delayed is allowing gatherings of up to 100 people. We know that it's mass gatherings where we've seen transmission of the virus previously. And so naturally that's one of the areas where we want to move carefully and cautiously. But that final decision about whether or not we do phase in level two or whether we move in one go like, um, like um, was outlined yesterday, that will be made by Cabinet on Monday. So we're going to have to wait and see. That announcement will be made at four o'clock this afternoon. Friday also saw the release of hundreds of documents related to the early stages of the government's coronavirus response. Here's how RNZ's political reporter Joe Moyer outlined some of the new info for RNZ's Checkpoint programme. So it's all hands on deck in the RNZ offices at the moment, uh, trying to work our way through these literally hundreds and hundreds of documents. So I can give you some key findings of what we have found so far broken down across a few areas. So if we look at the repatriation issue, this is these mercy flights. Now what we've found is that the government expects it could cost up to $14 million to get New Zealanders who are stranded overseas back home. Now that figure is specific to those people who are stranded in high risk countries. Now, there are more than 3,000 New Zealanders in those high-risk countries. They haven't named which countries they are, but as we know, only 300 have actually come home at this point on Mercy Flights, and that's only been to an expense of $2 million. So still a long way to go before we reach that $14 million figure. Now looking at contact tracing and community transmission, what we've found out is that in mid-March the government believed it could manage contact tracing for only 10 active cases at that point. But as we know there were more cases than that already in mid-March. The National Management Crisis Centre also gave advice to the COVID ministerial group. They said that they didn't have confidence in the reported rates around community transmission, which is obviously one of these key areas that we need to look at when moving through the alert levels. On April the 15th, the crisis centre said there was undetected community transmission around about three weeks earlier, but they didn't know how widespread it was. It said a significant amount of cases had missing information and others had been under investigation for a long time, which reduced its confidence in the data around that community transmission. Thursday is Budget Day, and we've already seen a few pre-budget announcements of new spending to combat COVID-19. Health Minister David Clark says there will be a $160 million boost in pharmaceutical spending over the next four years. The Chief Executive of Pharmax, Sarah Fitt, says the extra money is needed to cope with increasing prices for certain drugs, particularly those used in critical care. Obviously other countries have a significant impact on critical care um, uptake and that's affected the availability of medicines. Um, what we've been trying to do is build up our stock of these medicines over the last few months and certainly then we're having to compete on the open market for some of these medicines. And finally there was an exciting bit of news from the New Zealand Blood Service which has started collecting blood plasma from recovered COVID-19 patients. Dr Richard Charwood is a transfusion specialist for the blood service and he says it's believed the plasma 
will contain antibodies which can help fight the virus. Dr Charwood says the treatment is known as convalescent plasma therapy. Uh, convalescent plasma goes back many, many years. Uh, it's been tried in a, in a number of, of conditions and, and was um, certainly in the pre-vaccine era was used for quite a lot of uh, conditions. We thought we would try this now with uh, COVID-19 uh, because it was a close relation of SARS and that there was evidence that it worked in, in SARS. Um, so we thought we would set that up. Convalescent plasma isn't intended for every patient. It's intended for patients who are struggling with their infection, um, typically patients who are on the, the cusp of having to be admitted to intensive care unit. Now our producer Sonia Sly takes a look at what COVID-19 might mean for the future of packaging. The onset of COVID-19 has triggered a lot of fears, especially around what we touch and handle. I bought some produce, so I've got half a cabbage, which has come in glad wrap, a small bag of carrots, which were already pre-packaged, a pre-packaged bag of feijoas, a broccoli, which didn't come wrapped, some kiwi fruit, some tomatoes, but I did decide to purchase a bag of mushrooms, despite the fact that the unwrapped loose mushrooms looked like they were a lot fresher. But this has gotten me thinking about whether or not there will be a surge or rise in people gravitating towards prepackaged goods and produce as a result of COVID-19. There certainly is. I mean, the more sterile, the better. Meet Alistair from Capital Produce in Wellington. His company supplies fresh produce to restaurants and cafes around the region. And only a matter of weeks into lockdown, he'd noticed some shifts in behaviour. And of course, their business had to adapt too. The general customers like the idea of less hands being on their product. Unlike a supermarket, which is everyone gets to fondle the, the fruit and vegetables before you put it in your basket. People are after, you know, clean clipped products. What do you mean by that? One touch, not something that you have to handle a lot, like um, fresh beans or anything that requires you know more than once you know a broccoli a collie nice and easy one touch most places we buy from are gap approved which have a, a very strict growing program and protocols for you know when they do sprays how it must be handled they're the same people that supermarkets buy from because we're using gloves which is something that we didn't instigate before COVID-19, but now as a primary rule, everyone has gloves. The only fingerprints you really find on the product is, unless the grower doesn't wear gloves, would be Mother Nature. There's only one person that, that touches your produce. It's the same people every day. The traceability for us is very, very easy. But is this sustainable for you as a business and in terms of the way you staff your business? It is time intensive, but... We can evolve and change very quickly. It's a lot more labour intensive because we have to have the two metre space between everybody. So whereas we could get five or six people in the fridge piling through, now it's only, you know, two people in the fridge. But moving into the future, how much of our desire for our own safety and security 
is likely to drive our consumer behavior. I was at the local green grocers and as you do, you kind of pick the apples and the avocados that you want and you put them in your trolley. And I was thinking, man, I'm handling a lot of these different ones that I'm, I end up not, you know, just putting back on the pile. And so everyone before and after me must be doing the same. Professor Mike Lee is a senior lecturer of marketing at the University of Auckland Business School. He's an award-winning teacher of marketing strategy and research, consumer behaviour, advertising and promotions, and contemporary issues in marketing. So how does he feel about where we're heading on the packaging front? We've almost come full circle, haven't we? A few months ago, we were all headed towards the anti-single-use plastic route because of the environmental issues of single-use plastic and packaging. What you're talking about now is obviously the hygiene factor, which we've all kind of let slide over the last few years. There was the whole movement about probiotics and how maybe all these allergies and other health concerns and various intolerances are due to the hygiene theory, right? That we're too clean. Then this COVID thing hits and all of a sudden we're back to, oh no, actually, please, we want our vegetables wrapped. Don't let anyone touch my stuff and keep away from me how quickly that gut response we have just kind of kicks in. Because obviously this is a time when we all want to feel kind of safe. When I see someone, say, at the Asian supermarket next door, they are handling produce with gloves. I feel somehow reassured. I mean, if everyone had to wear gloves in order to pick the, you know, lemons and tomatoes and apples that they wanted, and then they discarded their, those gloves, which is probably happening all over the world right now, that's a lot of material going into the landfill. At one point, we were looking hopeful that we were going to get over all that sort of single-use plastic stuff. But I'm pretty sure that the use of single-use plastic over the last two months has probably skyrocketed, even though I guess fossil fuels probably have gone down. But moving forward past this initial phase of lockdown and into the future, what does this mean for like prepackaged goods, but also single-use plastic within the point of purchase? Do people want to see supermarket workers all wearing gloves, which means that they'll be going through many, many gloves per day, per week, and over the year, right? Imagine the pollution that that would be causing. And then do we want to see them wearing masks as well because we don't want them to, you know, accidentally sneeze on our apples or oranges? What does it mean about how we view other consumers that are sharing the space with us? Do we expect them to be wearing masks and, and gloves as well when they go into a public space? Does that make us feel any safer? You know, people's attitudes can change very quickly and they are willing to listen to to some of the actual facts out there. And so if there is data saying that, look, the chances of getting this disease from touching a cucumber that someone else has touched is pretty low, then maybe we don't need to go overboard. It seems like we've taken a bit of a step backwards when it comes to single-use packages and plastic manufacturers must be quite happy about this in some way. But disgust is potent, and advertisers have capitalised on this for decades. The human response to disgust and also this idea of contamination is very strong. They've done experiments with people drink from a water glass with a, a sterilized cockroach in the bottom of the glass and other things like that. You know, there's these sort of ev almost evolutionary physiological responses to things that we perceive as disgusting because it's so closely linked to our evolutionary need to avoid disease and uh, toxins and rotten fruit and all that sort of stuff that could make us sick because the human psyche is very good at imagining how easily things can be contaminated. You know, a classic example I use for my students when we talk about what the, this allure of having a first-hand versus a second-hand product, would you buy second-hand underwear or second-hand socks, even if it has been dry cleaned and boiled to death? And, and there's just a sort of a guttural response 
from everybody. They're like, oh, no, you know, you'd never buy secondhand underwear. That's just gross. The more recent phenomena of single packaged goods for hygiene purposes, like that click that we hear when we open a new bottle of water, you know, the seals that we say, do not use this product, the seal has been broken. Part of that is to do with product tampering and, and that sort of food security side of things. So whether we like it or not, we're going to be driven by our desire to avoid the things that we find disgusting. A lot of it is also seems to have sort of ingrained into us that if it didn't come to a seal, then it might be somehow dirty. So this magical ideation of this sort of thinking that things can be contaminated so easily and therefore are transferred to us, it's a very easy fear for advertisers and marketers and businesses to tap into, and they certainly have been doing that. It looked like we were going to sort of turn the tide on that a while ago, bringing your own bags, avoiding single-use plastics. But now, of course, you know, all the major supermarkets are saying you can't bring your own bags into the store. It's fine for you to have your own bags, but keep them in the car because obviously they could be dirty or contaminated. And until the data comes out more clearly on how long the COVID virus or any other sort of future viruses and pandemics can, can last on various surfaces, it is going to make us reassess once again how we handle produce and how prepackaged goods need to be in order to assure the population that they are clean and not contaminated in some way. Now, it's strange to think that even a couple of months ago, seeing someone with a protective face mask might have triggered fear or intimidation. But today, it's almost a prerequisite for leaving the house. So on that front, my thoughts head to Asia. They've dealt with SARS and the avian flu virus, and wearing masks is in some instances, an everyday scenario. And most consumer products, if you've ever been to Asia, are heavily prepackaged. And it kind of makes sense. So is that a response to the threat of disease? And could this be a way into the future for New Zealand? They are big. Asian countries are really big on prepackaged foods and goods for hygiene reasons. Take a look at Japan or, or for me, it's Singapore. Whenever I visit, a lot of stuff comes in this plastic wrap. And I think a lot of that, and I'm just speaking anecdotally, seems to be the sense that if it's not packaged, then it's not new. And if it's not new, I don't know where it's been. And so they're quite big on these little things that come, you know, sort of uber wrapped in layers upon layers of plastic. You get the big plastic thing, then the box that comes in, and then within the box, it's in another little plastic thing. And then sometimes you open that and it's sitting on a little plastic tray, you know, various confectionaries or products that you eat. There is appeal there, and there's certainly that appeal gets stronger when people are worried about contamination and, and disease and product tempering, which probably is a little bit more common in Asia, which is why they, they have this sort of desire for things to come pre-wrapped. And when we say heavily prepackaged, I'm talking sneakers. Anything you buy is likely to be vacuum-packed. So you know for sure nobody's touched it. But in New Zealand where, you know, we're fairly trusting that products haven't been tampered with and the person that, even though it might have been worn by someone once, they're unlikely to be diseased. I guess for the Asian countries, they're just going to continue wrapping stuff because this is, if anything, solidified their belief that wrapping stuff is clean. And I don't know if that's a particular cultural thing. They kind of perceive this wrapping as almost a tangible layer of trust in the business that's producing the the product. Whereas here in in the West, I find that a lot of people like going to the farmer's markets and getting these organic produce that is not wrapped, that is almost a little bit soiled or discolored in some way. That to us is a, a signal of authenticity. 
and heritage and uh, heirloom breeds of tomatoes and all that sort of stuff so that is slightly imperfect and therefore it's natural. It could come down to this perception of trust and also in some cultures, the opposite perception of authenticity and naturalness. But there's no denying that things will never be the same again. And that also means that businesses have to do some thinking too. Businesses are kind of almost at a crossroads where they can decide, do they go back and, and just wrap everything because that's what people want to see? Or do they take the time and try and implement some procedures that may be a little bit more difficult, but a bit more sustainable and require a little bit of education in order to rebuild that trust in customers? So when you go in, you know, what are the rules around handling produce? So there's some thinking to be done, I think. The question remains, is prepackaging even necessary? There's not a real need for that. Steve Flint is a professor of food safety and microbiology at Massey University. The guidance internationally is that there have been no links of COVID-19 to fruit or vegetables. So on that basis, I would say it's not a necessity. However, people should realise that handling anything and fruit and vegetables is just another surface that the virus could exist on for a period of time. That is a potential risk. So yes, there is a potential risk. So while he doesn't see a need for more packaging, he does see a case for prepackaged goods as an alternative. You know, trying to ensure that people are comfortable with what they're buying is worth doing. So having the option there for people, so having free flow apples and also packaged apples, probably the best way to go to make their own decisions. In the food industry, it's all about risk and assessing risk. Based on the information we have internationally, it appears to be low. But generally, I think people, you know, pick an item and take it with them. And the reality is there's a lot of other risks associated with fruit and vegetables in a supermarket situation that I think people overlook. And these are bacterial infections from maybe salmonella or listeria. Those organisms can exist on fruit and vegetables a lot longer than a virus like this. And some of those organisms I just mentioned are causes of food poisoning, whereas COVID-19 is a virus it will not grow on that surface. And people may feel comfortable in having their, their food prepackaged, and that's fine. In terms of cooked food or takeaways, I mean, what are the risks there? Like, for instance, if somebody is asymptomatic and they are cooking your takeaway food, what is the oh. risk of consuming that food that's been handled by someone else? This is a respiratory virus. It's not really going to cause a problem by eating it. It causes a problem by getting into the lungs and getting in through the, through the respiratory system. I think the biggest risk is handling the pack. So I would say with takeaway foods, take the package home, open it up, wash your hands, take the food out of the box and so on. Just thinking about how you're handling a package of any sort before you actually consume what's within that package. One of the things that I tell my students on, on occasions when I'm trying to get the importance of hygiene across is to think like a bug. Um, bugs are everywhere. And if we want to avoid consuming those bugs, in the case of food poisoning, getting some sort of illness, then we have to make sure that we remove those bugs. So what kind of packaging options are available on the market? I do know that there are packaging materials that certainly have been developed that are antimicrobial. And the reason for that is normally to prevent food spoilage rather than to prevent a problem with the handling of the pack. So it's normally related to the surface of the product. Some wrappings for um, some meat products, like delicatessen type products, have antimicrobial substances in them. So you can incorporate all sorts of antimicrobial substances into packaging, and you know this will come at a cost, but if people feel that it's worthwhile doing, then for sure it can be done, yeah. 
Thanks, Sonia. Before we go, last week we said goodbye to one of our producers, Jessie Chang. Now she's headed back over to work for RNZ's daily news podcast, The Detail. The Detail is restarting after going on hiatus while we were all on lockdown. So if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to that show. Take care. Be safe. Kakite kwe apopo. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me and Dara Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Thank you.